Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I've got a great hour planned for you, just just for you. I've got Tom and Marcia Berkowitz with me this afternoon, and we're going to jump into the book of John. Uh, Tom has been teaching that this year at uh, Community Bible Study. He's now in his 18th year teaching. He just grunted, Tom. I didn't grunt. Yeah, you did. No, I kind of laughed. Okay. <laughs> You're making me younger instead of older. Oh, I like that. How many years is it? Tw- this is my 22nd. Really? Yeah. How did I get that wrong? Because I look so young. How could I do it? <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was 18. No. What am I, what am I, how did I miss that? 18 is a good number, though. It is a good number. It is yeah. a good number. Well, ha- happy 22nd anniversary of doing community Bible study. And it's virtual this year, I assume. It is virtual. Yeah. That's new experience. Yeah. Now, last year, I think you talked, in, in, you were in the Old Testament, weren't you? Yes, we were... Red Sea to the... Yeah, Red Sea to the, the Jordan? Jordan River. Yeah. You have a better, better memory than I do. <laughs> and now this, this, year, this year you're doing the book of John, and the house would have been packed, except uh, it's virtual. But I would imagine there's still a lot of people online. Well, we have 462 enrolled. That's fantastic. It is. And thank God the the Zoom technology has gotten better each week. We're in week... We just finished week four. Mm-hmm. And instead of 50% of the people having problems and getting kicked yeah. off, now we're down to just three. Nice. <laughs> three groups. Nice. Well, it's exciting to uh, study the book of John. I love John. And what I want to do is just start off by uh, learning what we can learn about young John. When, <laughs> when, did, when did he start this, uh, this endeavor? You know, John was the youngest of the disciples, he was the younger brother of James, and you know he was a small business guy. Mm-hmm. So he was his partners were his brother James or Jacob in Hebrew and and Peter. Think about that partnership. I mean, Jesus called James and John the th- sons of thunder. Yeah. So you can just imagine these are all type A plus people. And when they have problems, it's fire, ready, aim, and then we'll say we're sorry afterwards. <laughs> yeah. You could be their business consultant. I probably could. You uh, could bring yeah. sanity to and that he, group. And he probably started when he was, what, 17 maybe? Young? Yes, yes. Young teenager? I mean, John, the Gospel of John was written somewhere between 90 and 95, 80 or CE, however you want to use those two letters. And it was written in Ephesus. And... So John's the last guy standing, and now he gets to, I call him the cleanup hitter. Not that the other Gospels were wrong, but 90% of the material in the Gospel of John was unique, new. So he got to fill in, God used him to fill in the things that weren't covered by the other three Gospels. Mm-hmm. So it's exciting. Yeah, so the Gospel, John, the Gospel of John, really emphasizes the deity of Jesus, doesn't it? It does. You know, you have to look at John as a biography. Okay. John wrote that as a biography. He wrote it 
primarily to unbelieving Jews. So that was his first uh, audience. Think about this. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. The Romans, you know, there's a lot of parallels between um, their society back then and ours today. And the political atmosphere is about the same. (laughs) And when the Romans... uh, Uh, destroyed the temple, they went ahead and crucified 250,000 Jews. They sold the bulk of them into slavery, and then some were able to escape. And John was already outside of of Jerusalem when the temple was destroyed. And so you have these mass exodus of Jewish people who settled basically in Asia Minor, around Turkey, Iran and places like that. And so John's in Ephesus, and he's writing this uh, gospel. It's the last one. Every one of his uh, fellow disciples have already been dead for maybe a decade, some of them for two. Paul died somewhere in the late 60s, and this is 90. Mm-hmm. So, and his, John's Bible wasn't the New Testament, because there was no New Testament it was Jesus's Bible, the same Bible that Jesus used and taught, which we call the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So that's what he was, and it was a very hostile um, to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And at that time, Christianity was still uh, a part of Judaism. So they had an exemption from the Roman Empire at that time. Christians did. Um, that they could worship the one true God. Everybody else had to worship Caesar as God. And Domitian was now the new emperor, and he had his sights on them. So if you were a Gentile Christian, you were an endangered species if you didn't worship the emperor. Uh, The Jewish believers were considered part of the synagogue, so they weren't. So if they got thrown out of the synagogue, they have all of a sudden now become a cult. And again, if they didn't worship Domitian as emperor, they would be killed. So that's the environment. So he's trying to make a case for Jesus as Messiah. He's talking to uh, Jews, and a lot of them were the Pharisees and educated Jews. And to me, John is the most Hebraic Jewish background gospel of all of them because of all the Hebraic idioms that they have. In it. And also, John used a teaching technique technique called remez. That means to hint. So his wording and stuff, although he wrote it in Greek, that was his third language. He was thinking Hebrew or Aramaic. Okay. And so he would be going back into the Hebrew scriptures with just little nuggets that's going to cause, um, it's going to cause the people to think. You remember what God told Moses back in Deuteronomy twenty nine? You know, the mysteries belong to me, but the rest of the word belongs to you. Go study it and mine the the nuggets out of it. And John is using that type of technique to reach this audience. Mm-hmm. I always think that John, uh, his writing strengthens the the faith of believers and also has a very strong appeal to unbelievers to come to faith. 
Oh, absolutely. Oh, good. That's what he's doing. He's making a case, the biography Mm -hmm. of Jesus. They're looking at this man. Who is he? You know, the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke gave, well, actually, Matthew and Luke gave the genealogy of Jesus in the natural, in his human genealogy. Going back to David, which was very important, uh, Luke went back into uh, uh, Judah into um, Jacob up to Abraham and then beyond Luke went all the way back to Adam Uh, Matthew started at Abraham but Jesus I mean John does something different he gives his spiritual genealogy in the beginning was a word Mm -hmm. and the word was with God and the word was God in the beginning was the word what a bold John comes out swinging doesn't he yeah that's a bold statement now, maybe a Gentile who didn't know anything would say, huh, well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, because logos is a, a strong Greek word. But to a Jew is, man, you've got to give me more than you just tell me this. How do you hook this in? And that's what John does. He gives the evidence that demands a verdict. I think somebody wrote a book like that uh, <laughs> with that title. Mm-hmm. But he does. He lays it out. And now you have to make a decision. So would Matthew have been the book that was uh, written more to a primarily Jewish audience? Well, that's what scholars say, but I think John is the book that was written to a Jewish audience. Okay. Uh, Most Jews were, um, weren't the elite. They weren't all educated. Uh, Most of them could speak the, the command, the words and the, and the blessings and stuff, but they couldn't write. They could read, but they couldn't write. Uh, but he was talking to Pharisees, John was. Mm-hmm. And he was talking to more of an upper crust of of Jews who didn't believe in Jesus. And he, he said some, something like this in John one fourteen, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What a bold statement. Mm-hmm. And they had, they're thinking, what is he saying? And we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In Hebrew, it would be full of hesed and uh, senior moment. That's okay. Truth. So, in other words, full of loving kindness and faith or faithfulness. Mm-hmm. So, he's telling them... He's full of loving kindness and faithfulness. This is different than the law that was given through Moses. This is a step up, and he entrusted it to this person. So right away they know, and his claim is, because of the way he did the genealogy in the beginning was word, Jesus is fully God, and he's fully man. And now they have to take a look at that. It says... uh, um, from glory, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son. That could be translated as a unique son. And when they saw, when they hear that unique son, they think right, of, right away, going back to Genesis 22, where God comes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham says, Hineni, here I am. What do you want? I'll do whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Then he says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac. Now, we know Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son. He had Ishmael. 
But he was a unique son. And what does that mean? He was a son that was birthed by a miracle. God intervened in Sarah and caused her womb that had been dead for decades to come alive and birth Isaac. He was a son of promise. Mm. And you look at Jesus, that was a very unique birth. It was a birth from a woman who was a virgin, never known man. So they all of a sudden, he's connecting the uniqueness of Jesus, something different from a normal way. In fact, everybody in John seemed to be unique. John the Baptist, his birth was unique. Remember, Zacharias was in the temple serving God all by himself, and the angel Gabriel came to him and told him that his wife who is, you know, when they say you're old, <laughs> how would you like to be the first descriptor? And Zachariah and Elizabeth were old. Oh, Hell, no. you're old. Oh. You know? <laughs> no, thanks. So what he was saying is Elizabeth is barren, hmm. but she's going to go have a child. Wow. I mean, so that was another unique birth. And all of a sudden, everybody's thinking, this is God's fingerprints all over what he's saying all over this biography and what he's doing. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a little break. Tom and Marsha Berkowitz are my guests. We're talking about John, which uh, I never, never get tired of talking about anything in Scripture, and I hope you're enjoying this as well. If you have a question or something you'd like clarified, let me know what it is. You can text me to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. So nice to be with Tom and Marsha Berkowitz. Tom is uh, teaching community Bible study here in Edina, Minnesota in his 22nd year. And we're talking about the book of John. And I think, uh, Tom, where I want to go next is uh, John chapter 2 and, and maybe relate that to some of the first signs uh, from Moses. Certainly. Certainly. Way back in Deuteronomy, God spoke through Moses and said, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you. So... The word prophet there, and like you, it means better than Moses. There was another, never another uh, other Moses. And here, throughout John, when uh, and even the other Gospels, when they asked, who is Jesus? Who do they say you are? Well, Elijah or the prophet. That prophet, they're talking back to Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. They're talking about the one the prophetic word that God spoke through Moses that he was going to raise up another one. They did not understand that prophet as being uh, a Messiah, but that was a start because they were starting to work on it. That's why they'll use Messiah or Christ, and then they'll say the prophet. Hmm. You think they're the same? Well, they're not quite the same. Okay. A little different. So anyway, back in uh, John 2... Jesus is around his mother and his family, and she gets invited to a wedding, and Jesus and his buddies, his disciples, get to tag along because weddings back then, everybody in the town comes. <laughs> and it's not a one-day ceremony or a couple-hour ceremony. 
it lasts for days. Yeah. So the first thing that happens is they run out of wine. And Miriam, Mary, comes to Jesus said they ran out of wine. Well, that would be a very... That would be a very um, shameful thing for the bridegroom not to plan yeah. better for we the wedding. we got a bad catering problem on our hands right, right now. big-time catering problem. So Jesus told the stewards to go fill up six big uh, vases that are about 20 to 30 gallons each with water. Those are what they use for cleansing the hands when they come to eat and when they go in and go out. So they're always washing their hands. And Mm -hmm. he said, take that. And as it turns out, they bring it back to Jesus. He said, now take it to the, the master who's ahead of the, you know, the chief caterer. Manager of food and beverage. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Let him taste it. Yeah. And he tasted it and it was great wine, better than what they had before. So you you got to think about that's a lot of wine. Think about that. Oh, yeah. Six, I mean, 20 to 30 gallons on six. So it's 120 to 180 <laughs> gallons of wine. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, that's a lot of wine. But anyway, when you think back uh, to Deuteronomy 18, and God spoke through Moses and said, I'm going to raise a prophet like you. The first sign that Moses did when he went to Pharaoh was... He struck the river, the Nile, and turned it into blood. And that was their source of water. And if your blood is, if your water is full of blood, you can't drink it. Mm -hmm. And death happened. And that was what happens with the law. It reveals our sin to us, but it doesn't give us a permanent way of overcoming that sin. And that sin leads to death. When Jesus comes, his first miracle was turning water into wine. Wine is a so, uh, is a symbol of life. So they one Moses and the law brings death. Jesus in his grace brings life. So that was a contrast, and his audience had to sit there and make note of that. Mm-hmm. That is a, a big time deal. Is there any other symbolism uh, in the turning of water into wine? I mean, do you think it was a, a, a rich red wine, or do you think it was like a white Zinfandel? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was it symbolic of his blood that one day he would shed? You know, that's good. You should write a commentary on that. Uh, that would be good. Yeah, right. Thanks, Tom. All but, right. Uh, I think I, you're making fun of me right I, now. No, I'm not. <laughs> I, I've never thought of that. Okay. It's a great question. But, uh, yeah, it could be a symbol of... Blood is life. Right. It would be red, and this is a symbol of life. So shedding that blood covers the sin because that's a problem. We're going to get in a minute now some of the Jewish high holidays, and that's a big problem that they have. What do you do about our sins? Yeah. You know, and if I could find my notes, there I go right here. You know, um, that's a a big thing. You know that what's going on now is the high holidays, Mm is the appointed times. And we first uh, had the Yom Teruah, which is a feast of or day of trumpets. We call it Rosh Hashanah now or the head of the year. But 
on Yom Teruah, which is a biblical holiday that you can see in Leviticus 23. It's a very solemn holiday. And that's where they will blow the ram's horn over a hundred times, announcing the need to stop what you're doing and start reflecting on your relationship with God. Between uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is 10 days, and they call them the 10 Days of Awe. And during the 10 Days of Awe is a time when you reflect. Uh, Orthodox Jews would come and cast uh, uh, bread from uh, Micah uh, 5 onto the sea, take our sins away from us. May our names be written in the Book of Life. Mm-hmm. For the next year on Yom Kippur, and that's when the blood sacrifices would take place. So you're doing a lot of reflecting. And then during the Sabbath, in between on those 10 days, and that Sabbath is called uh, Shabbat Shuvah. Shuvah in Hebrew means return. It's a root. The root comes from the root word of Teshuvah, which means to repent. So the the symbolism there is Return to God, repent of your sin, make right, follow him. And you know a cool thing that happened, what was it, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the big uh, prayer um, march and stuff they had in Washington, D.C. on the mm-hmm. mall by uh, uh, Franklin. Franklin Graham. And yeah, others. Franklin Graham. And uh, Jonathan Kahn was involved. Jonathan Kahn's a Messianic Jew. Mm-hmm. And he realized that this fell on Shabbat Shuva, and so they had a great celebration with Marty Getz was there, Michael uh, Brown was there, and for 13 hours, they just spent time uh, with messages and music trying to get the people to focus and return, and that's what we do. And you know something? There was over 50,000 from a couple different sources that were there, not one riot. Not one cops, you couldn't even find them because everything was peaceful. I think God was symbolically sending a message. When you follow me, there is no need for the rest of this stuff. There is no chaos. So then you come to Yom Kippur, and that's a day of atonement. And that's where uh, your sins for the year are covered with the, the sacrifices and the blood. And five days after that, is uh, Sukkot, or Feast of Tabernacles. And we're in that right now, and when we come back, I will tell you uh, three, I used a lot of words, but I'll give you three words that will sum up the awesome holidays. And say that again, the festival, what is it called again? Sukkot. Sukkot? Yeah. Okay, good. Booths or Tabernacle. Okay, awesome. Tom and Marsha Berkowitz are my guests. We're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we'll pick up right where we left off.
We're back with Tom and Marcia Berkowitz. Tom teaches a community Bible study right here in the old Minnesota. He's in his 22nd year. We're talking about the book of John and some of the festivals. We've got some questions coming in. Tom, let's knock these off before we resume. Okay. Is that good? Sure. Uh, in the gospel, why does uh, he refer to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved and not just use his name, John? Well, John was a very humble man. Remember, again, this was a biography. This was at the end of John's life, and he wanted the focus not to be on him, but solely on Jesus. And that's who the biography is about. So he viewed himself as being a minor character in this whole event. Okay. Another question. You said that most Jews didn't know how to write, but Jesus wrote on the ground in John 8, 8. When did he learn how to write? Well, he probably learned when he was a young boy from his parents, uh, Miriam and, and Joseph. And if you take a look at Luke 2, uh, he stayed behind at the, I think it was the Feast of Passover. And he was talking with the learned uh, uh, scholars, and they marveled at his question and his questions he asked in his wisdom for somebody who was not learned. So in other words, he learned not from one of the schools like Hillel or Shammai. He learned from God and he knew how to read and write. Hmm. Nice. uh, He was 12 years old then, I think. Yeah. All right. Let's pick up again where we left off. Okay. So we, we talked about the three holidays. Yes. Really quick. Three feasts. The first two are, are Psalm and a reflection. Reflect on yourself so you can get in right standing. The third one was party time. Let's be joyous before the Lord. Let's dance and sing and praise before the Lord. And the three words that I would use for the the, the talk about the three feasts is um, repent, restore, and rejoice. And if you look at uh, Nehemiah 8.10, this is now they got the temple and the city of Jerusalem, the walls back together, and they're reading the word for the first time. And it was on the Feast of Sukkot, on the Feast of Tabernacles. And when they were reading the words, and here's what it says in verse 10, Then he said, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So this is a day of celebration. It's also a day of provision. It's the fall harvest. So, I mean, that's how you look at these three. But in John 7, to me, is one of the greatest sections of the gospel. It's, one of, it's my favorite chapter. Because it's all about Sukkot. It's all about the Feast of Tabernacles. And the symbolism there is just mind-boggling to me as I I take a look at it. So it starts off in John 7, Jesus is up in the Galilee. Now, there's three pilgrim uh, feasts every year. And the three are Passover, Pentecost, and Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. So all Jewish men are required to go up to Jerusalem during that time. 
And Jerusalem would, the population would swell to over a million people in that city. So it's maybe 10 times more or 8 to 10 times more than it normally is. And in Jerusalem, they have uh, 12 huge, during this time, uh, menorahs that stand like 50 feet high. And they have 12-gallon holders for each of the branches Mm -hmm. that they set on fire at night so it's light. The rest of the place is dark, so people are attracted to the light. Keep that in mind. We'll bring that back in in a little bit. Oh, good. But anyway, so Jesus is up in the Galilee, and his brothers start pimping him a little bit. When are you going to go and show yourself? You're telling us we're a Messiah. Let's see it. Because mm-hmm. they weren't believers. And that was uh, the subject that uh, was going on. And he told them to go up. And he wasn't going to go at that time. It was not my time. So he went up later. He didn't want to go with them. And so he gets there in the middle of this thing, and he starts teaching. And so they don't recognize him. Who is this guy who's talking like this? Is he Elijah? Is he the prophet? Now, Jesus has been ministering for three years. He's going to the cross in approximately six months. And they don't recognize who he is because he looked like the average Jewish man, mm-hmm. somewhere between five foot two and five foot five, all of skin, uh, just like any Eastern man would look. Nothing distinguishing about him, but his teaching, and they heard it, and now they were arguing, and the and the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and scribes, and the Pharisees wanted him gone. Now, there were 6,000 Pharisees during that time. So when you think they're a small part of the population, but they were a very vocal sect. And above them were the priests and the scribes. They were the aristocrats. They're the ones that had all the big bucks. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Pharisees weren't poor, but they weren't as rich as the Sadducees. But they were zealots for the word. And to make themselves feel good, they would put things on the word that probably weren't there. Mm. Like, uh, um, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. By that time, the the Pharisees had 1,500 different rules to keep the Sabbath holy. Oh, my. So they took something, and that's why Jesus fought them. On that, and here he was talking about that time about healing on the Sabbath, and he, here's his argument: You will circumcise somebody on the eighth day if it falls on the Sabbath. Why wouldn't you heal someone on the Sabbath? Mm-hmm. Where's the rule that prohibits that? And the Sadducees, I mean the Pharisees, will say, "Wait until after the Sabbath is over," but Jesus says. If your animal fell hurt, you take care of him. How much more should you take care of of a, a fellow Jew, a human, mm-hmm. and heal them? So he's arguing with them. They don't like this because he's winning. He's not only is he winning, but it's creating a problem. Remember, most of the masses of people aren't that educated, and they're listening to this word and they're saying this teaching is one with authority. Mm-hmm. So now they come. And here's the drama. So it's 
now on verse 20, uh, 37, excuse me, on the last day of the feast. Now, when they say the last day of the feast, the sun has come down. This is sundown. And that's when the last day of the feast starts. Remember I talked about the 12 giant menorahs? Yeah. They're all lit up. So you can see light through the darkness. And what does uh, light do? It lights up the darkness. The priests and the scribes would go down with big water canisters to the Pool of Siloam. Uh, and you know about that from the other Gospels. That's where they healed uh, the lame man mm-hmm. uh, at the pool. They'd go down and fill it up, and they'd walk up the same steps everybody walked into the temple. They would go up on the altar, and they would pour the water down and let it come down the steps. And they're thinking about the verses in Ezekiel and in Zechariah, and their belief was that water was symbolic, that it would split off. It would roll into the Dead Sea and make it alive again. That was when the Messiah comes. That's what was going to happen. And they would mix the water with oil. So it was not only water, a symbol of life. It was oil, the symbol of the Spirit, and it was going down there. And there was a moment there where they'd be quiet. And then here's what Jesus said. On that last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Can you hear the silence? Oh, yeah. It's screaming at you. The silence are screaming at you. And they're turning all around. Who said that? What just happened? So the focus is on him. And he goes on, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believe in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit has not been given because Jesus was, has not yet been glorified. He just said the gospel there. Mm-hmm. They were looking at the symbolism of the water and oil flowing down the steps with the idea when the Messiah comes, he's going to write everything. He's going to turn the Dead Sea into a sea of life because that's what Jesus does. He takes the dead and makes it alive. We were dead in our sins, and now we're going to be alive with him. And he's telling them, if you thirst... Let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Well, in the Hebrew, we translate that word heart, but it also can be translated out of his belly. That's what it really meant. So out of his belly, it sounds better for us out of his heart, but out of his (laughs) belly comes living water. And why that's important, because it's connected to your navel. And the belief there was a temple, was a navel of God. In the Jewish worldview, Israel was the center of the world, and the center of Israel was Jerusalem. The center of Jerusalem was a temple, and the center of the temple was the holy of holies. So the navel. Mm-hmm. And so out of the, the temple... Out of the navel, 
comes this water. And what Jesus is saying is what this is symbolic of is since the creation of humankind, God has wanted to dwell with us. He wanted to fellowship with us. He wanted to tabernacle. We started off that winter garden, and we kind of fell short, and he couldn't coincide with us in the sin. Uh, 2,500 years later, when God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he brought them into the wilderness, and he had them design the temple and what was or the tabernacle and mm-hmm. in the middle of the tabernacle was the holy of holies he was going to and that's where he he resided when they dedicated his shekinah glory was so thick that everybody fell on their face cuz they couldn't stand before it once wow. again Israel didn't stand up to that and 1500 years later After the temple had been destroyed once because of their sin, when the Babylonians did it, and about uh, 500, just under 600 years later, uh, it was rebuilt, and Jesus comes. And what does Jesus still wants? He's pointing to the prime objective of God, and that is the fellowship and live with his creation. He didn't create us just so he can watch us walk around. He wants to tabernacle with us. That's what his whole goal is. So with Jesus' death on the cross that paid the cost of our sin, his resurrection from the dead, which paid, uh, which defeated death, and then his ascension into heaven, he's victorious. And he sends that, sends that Ruach, the spirit that they're talking about, God's spirit, to be inside us, in our belly, in our hearts, so he can pitch a tent mm. in our heart and tabernacle with us forever. That's intimacy. Oh, is that ever? Wow, that's powerful. Yeah. So that's what he was saying. And the symbolism is unbelievable. And I can just see, a, a, I mean, like I'm saying, Jerusalem swelled to over a million people. People are saying, what did he say? Listen to what happened afterwards. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is, this really is the prophet. Again, that going back to Deuteronomy 18, others says, this is the Christ or the Messiah. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Because they knew he was a Galilean mm-hmm. by his dress and his actions and his, his speech. Has not the scripture said that the Christ... Uh, comes from the offspring of David, comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was division amongst the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but they laid no hands on him. And even the temple guards wouldn't touch him because nobody has spoken this way. (laughs) And they saw this, and there had to be a glory. Wow. Think of the scene, the light. Can you see the light falling on That is my savior right there. Right. Yeah. (laughs) All right, Tom, let me take one last break. Tom and Marsha Berkowitz are my guests. We'll be right back.
so nice to be back with Tom and Marsha Berkowitz. All right, Tom, this is, uh, you got me all excited right before break. This is a fantastic image. It's so powerful as we talk about this, uh, this what Jesus said that, that day, that night. It really is. And I just want to finish up in this last section, uh, uh, going down to John eight twelve. Now, your one of your questions was right about Jesus writing in the sand. Well, all scholars agreed that that was inserted in there. But the continuation from what I just talked about would be to John eight twelve, And again, picture the menorahs lighting up. There's darkness all around, mm-hmm. and now there's light. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This goes back to the first chapter of John in verse uh, uh, 5, actually in 4 it starts, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then it goes down to verse 9, True light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. So at the time, it goes on to say they didn't know him. But think about that. We're called to be the light of the world. Jesus said in his first extended teaching in Matthew 5, he said in 5.16, he says, Let your light shine before people in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what we as a church, the followers of Jesus, are called to do. And that's we're called to be the light to the world. And just my last teaching at uh, a community Bible study, I ended it with this. The church is called to be a light. And we live in a dark world right now where evil is called good and good is called evil. There's an attack upon the church. But no matter what happens, we're called to be a light. And light will always shine in darkness. And darkness, although it will attack the light, cannot overcome it. So think about this. Right around the time John uh, was living and he wrote this gospel, the law in the Roman Empire said if you had a female child, the first one you had to keep and you were responsible for it. The second, third, or fourth, if you had female children, you could throw them on an ash heap to let them die because they weren't as valuable as men babies. And if anybody comes and takes that female child, that child who is dying on that ash heap, you would be guilty of a crime. You could be put in jail. You could be... uh, Tortured, you could even be killed. If you tried to rescue that If you baby. did. And wow. so what happened? The followers of Jesus would see that child, and they would risk their lives by rescuing that child and raising that child in the truth of Jesus. That shined light. The rank and file people saw that, and they said, wow, what courage. When the plagues came, everybody scattered except the church. The followers of Jesus, 
and they went and healed and worked with the sick and tried to nurse them back to health. Many of them lost their lives themselves by doing that. But what did they lose? Because they believed that they live eternally with God. And that light shines so bright that thousands upon thousands of people came and wanted that light in their lives. That's so strong. And it's been that way throughout history. So we live in a time of turmoil. And I, I'm not, I'm apolitical, but we're called to be lights right now. Mm-hmm. We're not called to attack people. We're called to love them. And I'd like to read something I, I, that's just humbled me of late. Good. If I can. You got time. And it's on forgiveness because forgiving in this society is something that we live in today causes light to shine on mm-hmm. us. When the, the African-Americans were killed by that white person down in their church during a prayer uh, vigil that they were having, a prayer meeting they were having, they forgave him. Mm-hmm. That shined brightly. But this is something. Liberators found the following paper or falling prayer crumbled among the remains of uh, Ravensbrück concentration camp where the Nazis exterminated nearly 50,000 women. Here's the prayer. O Lord, remember not only the men and women of goodwill, but also those of ill will. But do not remember the suffering they have inflicted on us. Remember the fruits we brought thanks to this suffering. Our comradeship, our loyalty, our humility, the courage, the generosity, the greatness of heart, which has grown out of this. And when they come to judgment, let all the fruits that we have borne be their forgiveness. Wow. That's a light. (laughs) Yeah, that's a light. So what kind of light are we shining? Good question. Every time I yell at somebody because they cut me off in traffic, what kind of light am I shining? It's really, I've really been convicted of this. And I want the light to be God's Shagina glory mm. shining through my life. Mm-hmm. I think of an old, old C.H. Spurgeon quote. He said, fear to die? Thank God I do not. The cholera may come again next summer. Pray it may not. But if it does, it matters not to me. I will toil and visit the sick by night and by day until I drop. And if it takes me, sudden death is sudden glory. Right. That's, we're called to be holy. Mm -hmm. Peter says we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The the, uh, word holy in Hebrew is kadosh, and literally means other than. Who are we other than? We're other than the world. We're other than how we're trained. It's not about me. The question about... John, why wasn't he mentioned more? Because John understood the glory goes to God. The light shines through him. And because John believed that, his gospel is shining light for centuries upon centuries, for eternally, because of the way. 
a good, he viewed himself. It's a good reminder, Tom. You think of everyone trying to build their brand and, and increase their platform and become better known. Not John. John made it all about Jesus. Yeah. You know, and I'm seeing a revival happening. I'm seeing people in the midst of this darkness coming to light. Reminds me of the words that Moish Rosen wrote. Uh, he's a founder of Jews for Jesus. You can't turn off what the Holy Spirit is turning on. Amen. So in the midst of this trials, in the midst of this pandemic and all the riots and all the destruction we have, a light is coming on. And you can't turn that off. The Spirit is working. I love it. Tom, thank you so much. And thank you, Marcia, for coming today. You didn't really say anything, but loved having you. It's been great. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. That wraps up our show for the day. If you missed any of it, you can always head over to MyFaithRadio.com and check out the podcast page. We, I'm so uh, glad I could spend this time with you today, and I look forward to our time tomorrow. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you then. for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.